Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. So welcome, uh, Rydian, great to have you. I think what I'd like to invite you to do is just to go straight in to giving us just a touch of something actually a bit unusual, um, but still one of the thoughts for the days because this excellent book, um, which we'd all want to buy. It's a very good cover, isn't it? Don't you think? I really like this. Um, on sale downstairs, and it's only just, I think, come out in in, uh, in proper copy. Is that right? Um, this is full of great thought for the days. And let's hear one first, Ridian, mm. um, that gives us some clues to what you're about. Yeah, this is atypical. Um, uh, this thought I'm going to read. I was asked to do Thought for the Day on National Poetry Day in 2015, and I thought, dare I write a poem? And I thought, I know, I'll try and write a poem describing what I think Thought for the Day is, or tries to be. So um, in a way, this is my attempt at encapsulating that. It's time for thought, and there's two minutes 40 to put some glory in the morning story, to make something meaningful of what is topical, to see the spiritual in all this material. Time to get the words right, to set the world straight, to give a different take and shed a different light, to kick against the pricks of the daily grind, to grab a truth worth hearing, to have a quiet word amidst the cut and thrust of opinion and cross-question, to offer reflections from faith's deep wisdoms, to speak for and against the absurd, to admit the world's sorrow, but not let it have the final word. It slipped between what the papers say and the tape section, which on any given day reports a sparrows falling, a kingdom dividing, and the weather bad and changing. <laughs> this daily anomaly can't be sermoned and not quite homily, preach and be damned, but sound right about what's wrong. Mine for the good in the awe of the bad, for a single pearl make a dive, say there's a God or hint that there might be, keep the rumor alive, but don't get ethereal, keep things reasonable, don't peddle consolation or the best available illusion. Tell a truth, but tell it slant. If not truth, then something equal to it. Make sense of the din, the savagery, the wonder and triviality if you can. Think of the listeners, put yourself in their ears, the invisible throng, half listening, heckling, shaving, commuting, your background noise to all this thrum, a still small voice vying with all the striving, Truth and platitude sound alike to someone not listening. The world is dying to hear something better, but at this time of morning it's hard to catch other ways of seeing and being, or doing and living. When you need to get going and a bigger story's breaking and stocks are tumbling and empires are crumbling and they're announcing the fall of kings and companies, the start of wars and the whole world's ending. The clock is ticking, everything atrophies and things fall apart. Dare you say there's something lasting? You have mere moments to risk the invisible, back the unprovable, stake all on the intangible. Be still and know there's a place, a three-minute space, the time it takes to boil an egg, to hear a different voice, another noise. Clear your throat. Yes, it's live. Speak of more than what we simply see and hear, the something, not the nothing. No need to start a creed or lay a law. Say what you think this life is for. Give some grist, blow a breeze. Throw a seed from your studio chair, from this kingdom of the air. Announce good news is near. 
before we're off and on our way. And whatever you do, whatever you say, make it a thought that lasts a day. So there it is. That's the task in all its glory. Uh, and it's really tough. And Ridian's been doing this for 20 years. So how do you start? Um, you know, where do you get your initial thought, your initial idea, the thing you're going to work with? You know, what's the starting gem? Well, you're slightly subject to the contingencies of the news and where you are in the week. You know, if you, it's live, so you have to be booked well in advance. Um, they have to know you're going to be there. Um, so if you have three successive Thursdays, you know, by a Thursday, if there's a big story on a Monday or a Tuesday, you won't be doing that story. You write it. I, I've always written it the day before I've done it, bar one or two exceptions. So you keep an eye on what's going on. Sometimes ahead of a time, maybe two weeks before, you might think, I need to do a thought about that, or you might have a thought. Um, but generally, it's you're serving fresh bread as much as you can. Mm. Um, and there have been moments where I've... I, 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 buy, I have a sort of very set routine the day I'm writing it. Um, I buy a few papers, um, including the ones I don't agree with. And, um, you know, sometimes I will get the thought that morning. The producer calls you at nine o'clock in the morning or 9.30. What are you going to do, Rid? I'm thinking you're doing this or maybe that. That sounds good. Okay. Speak to you at three o'clock mm. and then off you go. Mm, right. And, and well, it's interesting you mentioned the, um, the producer there. Mm. So the relationship of you and the producer is really quite key, I would think, isn't it? And how, how they respect you and, and you them. How much, um, how severe are, are producers, do you find, on, on what you do? I think my, my experience has been pretty good. I think they were severer on me at the beginning, yeah. uh, but probably with good reason. Um, and uh, as I, I think I've got slightly better at doing it over the years, certainly it's got easier to write. So a good producer can steer you away from the rocks um, if that's where you're going. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that, you know, they might have an afterthought, having, you know, signed it off at six o'clock. You may get a call at nine. Christine Morgan, who's head of religion, is sort of brilliant, kind of sort of midwife to all this stuff. And um, sometimes she might just hear something that, you know, if there's something breaking in the news at eight, two years, two, two hours after you filed, it may be that you need to change that line out of a sensitivity to something that's broken mm. so um my experience has been good would they would they sometimes though um is there a danger that they try to make it bland um you know make it inoffensive because we mustn't offend you know this that or the other group um do you find, sometimes find that constraint yeah i i have and i have i have over, i think i've been doing it 20 years so i've been doing it long enough to see a change in what you can and can't do but Lots of things are coming at Thought for the Day from different places. Um, and it's not just the obvious places. Um, so there are different kinds of constraints. I mean, the BBC itself is under pressure. So there's their constraints. And then there's the religious freedom constraints. And then there's the, you can't be seditious. I think it's probably got slightly harder to do it over the years in terms of saying exactly what you want to say. Mm. Um, but then you just get cuter <laughs> at doing it, I think. Mm. And that's a good thing. Mm. Um, you have to find subtle ways to say something uh, meaningful. Um, I don't think anyone wants a thought for the day to be bland. Um, 
there are, you know, I know recently there have been some sort of um, examples and, you know, from other contributors of feeling that they had to do something they didn't want to do. That's quite rare. Mercifully, I've never had to change my thought because of a major event, you mm. know, having written it and then written it overnight. I've had to tweak some things because of breaking news, but mm. um, I've never had to do that, mm. Um, mm. thankfully. You, you usually, um, oh, always, uh, come in with a good first line. <laughs> Um, and I guess that's really important. You just got to ground people in the first um, couple of seconds, haven't you? I mean, things like I, I noted down this this lovely line. Um, I stumbled across Jesus three times yesterday. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, and and the book uh, the, the thoughts are are full of that kind of great first line. How important is it to you to get that first line exactly right? And indeed, maybe the last line as well. I don't know. Yeah, I think the copywriter in me. Um, you know, I, I used to work in advertising, and you know, you the, the, you have very little time to grab the attention. I don't know what the second the, the, the time span's probably got less over the years. Yeah. Um, it used to be sort of eight seconds, I think, and now it's probably about point three. Mm. You have to think about what you're doing when you're doing thought for the day, which is and how you hear it. You know how people are hearing it, and if you can't get the attention early, it's unlikely that people will follow you. I mean, very often people aren't necessarily following your whole thought from the beginning either. Um, so every line, every line needs to work. Um, but yeah, you, I do craft it and I do tr- consciously go for an arresting opening. And, and that ending as well. I mean, there's a, you, you often have this really keen last line. You want people to have in their head, really, to stay with them as a meme in there, don't you? Um, so is that getting that last line really important? Yes, it is. I mean, uh, again, it's what people Every take away with them. Yeah. yeah. But what people take away with them um, for the day, you know, there's a rule in, in, in the world of writing that, that the beginning of a novel is more important than the ending and the end of a film is more important than the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think with thought for the day, it's kind of both, both mm-hmm. beginning and yeah. ending. You know, yeah. obviously it's a completely different form. Um, mm-hmm. But the principle is the same, um, what people take away and mull over. Mm. Um, if they're going to mull over anything. Mm. So it is important that you know who you're addressing, isn't it? Can, can we just look at that for a bit? Because in my you know, very small way of doing sort of a day on, on local radio, um, I used to find that uh, I, I was told, you know, you're not addressing hundreds of thousands. You're addressing one person shaving, you know, two mm. people having breakfast. You know, mm. it's just a very domestic kind of thing. Um, who do you feel you're addressing? Term, in terms of how do you see them and what kind of person uh, are they that you're really aiming for? I think I say in my introduction to the book, there's sort of, I feel there are three kind of categories of people, and maybe this isn't totally fair, but there are the people who are very hostile to what you're going to be saying anyway, um, philosophically, um, or from a world viewpoint. Uh, there are the religious people for whom you're never going to be correct, um, then way they're the toughest crowd. Um, <laughs> And then there are just the weary, tired, which is probably most of us. And uh, that's what I've, you know, I, I guess I've come to see thought for the day as more pastoral over the years. Um, people don't, people want to be, you want to make people think and sit up, but you don't want to harangue people either. So I just consciously thinking of the person, I try and think of my more kind of cantankerous, atheistic, agnostic friends uh, who may be driving to work or, you know, shaving or whatever it is and think, okay, how do I, how do I hold their attention mm. without them going, oh, mm. you know, it's written mm. and it's special friend again. Mm. And so you get response. 
do you get much um, fan mail, much hate mail, you know, <laughs> and what do you do with it? The green, the green yeah. letters. Yeah, green ink. Yes, you do. You get both. I mean, actually, interestingly, because of the because of social media, that's changed a lot. Twitter is a very instant feedback, and it's usually a positive one. Is and it? That's interesting. It's yes, usually a positive one. It is actually. Yeah, the people who write, um, I actually have some lovely letters written to me over the years. As a rule, they'd be from elderly people, usually correcting me on my theology or uh, my quoting of scripture. There have been some very very unpleasant ones as well. A couple where you know you have to hand them over to department and say, "Can you deal with this?" Mm. Do you ever respond? Do you ever get back in touch? Well, the rule is never do that. Yeah. But I did do it once, um, and I did a thought for the day. I don't know if you remember. There was a character called Stephen Hill, who was one of these guys in America who bombed um, an abortion clinic, and someone was killed, and he went to the electric chair. And I did a thought for the day about it, and. The kind of thrust of the thought was what kind of what Bible do you read? You know, mm. what, what message do you, where, where did he get his message mm. from? Because he, he said it was a biblical, biblically motivated thing. I thought, I did the thought and thought nothing of it. And then I got a letter actually from his best friend after he'd been executed. And uh, he was understandably very, very upset and angry with me and sort of obviously a person of faith, you know, and I was just sort of liberal, whatever I was. And I thought, Oh, that's a shame. And he hadn't quite heard what I'd said in the thought. Um, Nicola, my wife, said, oh, no, don't engage with that. But I, for once, ignored her uh, advice. And I did write back. And um, about two weeks after that, I got a, I think it would have been email by then. I got an email and he apologized. And I had a little bit of a dialogue with him as a consequence mm -hmm. of that. So, you know, cutting through the anger, uh, it was worth going the extra mile in that instance. Mm. I couldn't do it for everybody who's ever written to me. Typically, can you, if, if you if you do a really good one, how many responses might you get? How many, you know, Twitter um, responses? Or well, I did one uh, recently about um, dementia right. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that got a huge response on Twitter. I mean, I don't know how many, you know, right. sort of 50, 60 mm. tweets, retweets or whatever. And if you exponentially kind of multiply that, that's for mm. a lot of people. Mm. I've got a website for all my writing, and there's a little button called Analytics. Mm. And if you press it, it tells you how many hits you have that day, that hour. You can break it down. And um, over the years, I'm, I, whenever I do a thought for the day, the analytics tells me mm. at least you know 60 to 100 people are visiting the website. Mm. To, what, you know, who is this person? Um, so it, it definitely has a reach, mm. as we know. You mentioned um, uh, using the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and I notice as I read and listen um, that you parts of the biblical story, biblical narrative are, are nearly always there. I wonder if that's a kind of guideline rule that you use um, that you know you'll always get in the Christian story would always be there in kind of biblical focus at some point. Is is that deliberate and uh, is it a way of kind of anchoring you in the Christian <coughs> message? Tell us about your use of the Bible. Yes, um, I've got a. I've got one of these Bibles that has a concordance, so if there's a subject, you can look it up. And sometimes the night before, if I know what I'm doing, I'll just immerse myself in what Scripture has to say about homelessness or greed or whatever the sort of vague topic is. Because I just feel I don't want to be relying on myself when I'm doing these things. And it's like all this wisdom is here, so why not tap into that? So there is a conscious going there. I think there's also a trust that Scripture works. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a silly thing to say, but yeah. I think people are sort of worried about scripture sort of putting people off. But I have the slightly opposite view, which is that actually the, the most, you know, the appositely chosen piece of scripture can really cut through and be quite surprising mm. to the point where someone hearing it might go, was that really in the Old Testament? Mm. Or who said that? Mm. Um, or did even Jesus say that? You know, so because it's constantly mm. surprising scripture. Mm. So for that reason, I think it, I will try. I mean, you have to begin to be cute about where you put that scripture. And, and there's a sort of parody of thought for the day where you build up to, you know, and what would Jesus do if he played for Tottenham Hotspur? <laughs> um, but, you, you know, you're, and you're sort of trying to avoid that. But in a way, it's, it's almost like there's a sort of, um, I guess it's about authority. Uh, there's, a, I, there's an authority that I'm trusting to, um, as well as my own authority or the, um, you know, I, a lot of my thoughts are first person sort of stories mm. about my own life. Mm. And that's partly, again, connected to feeling I've got the authority to tell that story because it's my story. You know? They're not all first person, you know, experiences. But um, I did a breakdown of who I quote most uh, from scripture. And it's all that's, oh, I mean, probably apart from Jesus, it's Old Testament prophets who continue to have something to say to us. And and yet we're living in this society where we're told you know, 52% of population has no religion, mm. uh, that um, our, our kids um, don't know what happened at Easter or even coherently what happened at Christmas. So there's been quite a change, I guess, in people's just knowledge of the story. And so you're relating back to a story. Now, is that kind of trying to in a sense, counteract the fact that it's not known. So let's, you know, let's make sure we keep the Bible there. Um, or, or is there a danger that you might actually begin to lose contact with people because you're quoting something they just don't know? You know, is, is it is your use of the Bible? Do you think uh, becoming more contentious in your own mind? You know, trickier. Uh, I think it comes back to: is it relevant? Yeah. Is what is said there relevant? And yeah. if it's relevant, it will always be relevant. I think definitely you could argue that we're not as biblically literate as a society as we were even 20 years ago, maybe. But there's possibly an advantage to that in that it doesn't feel, mm. doesn't feel like a trope or a tired mm. old thing mm. that a vicar might say. Mm. It's, it's where did that come from? Mm. Yeah. So I try not to presume too much on people's sort of personal knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Mm. Um, but I trust, it's more of a trusting that the word speaks. Where does that go back to in your own story, Ben Meridian? I mean, has has scripture always been important to you? Has the faith always been important to you? Um, you know, what's your own journey to this position been? Well, I, you know, I haven't always been a person of faith. I, I came to my faith in my sort of late mid to late twenties, sort of fairly dramatically, I guess. Um, and I not only came to faith at the same time, I started writing. So words and faith are very linked in my journey. And I, when I read the Gospels for the first time properly, as it were, I was so astonished by them. Even though I'd grown up in a kind of nominally Christian cultural background, when I read the Gospels, I was sort of almost cross that no one had told me about them. Even though they had been telling me about them, I just hadn't been hearing it. You know, this is dynamite. This is incredible, this stuff, if it's true. Um, so I had a real sort of either or kind of moment, um, you know, in my mid to late 20s, which set me on this journey and uh, words were a very important part and storytelling and I guess meaning, you know, that there's meaning 
mm. as opposed to there's something rather than nothing. Mm. Okay, so society has changed, and therefore you just need to be aware of that in the way the way you um, communicate uh, a gospel and truth. But there's a freshness about um, uh, the words of the gospel. That's great. If society has changed, how much have you changed in your way of being a presenter of thought for the day? Twenty years, I mean, you've, you've probably apart from Richard mm. Harris, you've probably got the longest trajectory, haven't you, on thought for the day? I think one of, yeah, yeah. So uh, ha- have you changed much in the way that you go about this unique task? <laughs> well, on a practical level, I, after about five years of doing Thought for the Day and being told by a number of people that I spoke too quickly, mm-hmm. I realized that my thoughts were 150 words too long. I don't know why the producers didn't pick up on this, but once I realized that, that made a huge difference mm. because 150 words is, is a lot to cram in into three minutes extra on top of the 400 as it were. I think um, in terms of my own um, outlook, it's interesting, if, you know, going through God, this, this collection is, is not, I've done 250 thoughts and there are 125, so it's about half. So it's interesting looking at what my preoccupations were and have been and what I talk about the most. But I can see from my very, very first thought, uh, sort of through line yeah. of I guess, a, an outlook, a theology, if you like. Yeah. Um, that has been reasonably consistent. Things that have happened to us in our life, have, have, in my life, has, have changed the way I see certain things. Um, and that is reflected in some of the thoughts. I mean, we did this trip, uh, my family and I did a trip with the Salvation Army in 2006. And I actually did thought for the days as I was traveling. I think um, that hadn't been done before at that time. Mm-hmm. And that journey really um, was hugely challenging, amazing. Uh, experience, but it was also, um, it challenged me in a very unexpected way about my own faith and church and my understanding of how I lived and worked out my faith. And some of that kind of bled into the thoughts. Could we hear one of those? Sure. Let's, let's hear another thought today. And this is one that does come from that mm. that period in Africa. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, I'm going to read you a thought. Um, it's called A Glass of Water. And uh, at the top, I just say this thought comes to you from rural Kenya, where we have been living for the last month. Although we are a well-traveled family, we have rarely been to places where people live on the dollar a day that a third of the world's population tried to survive on. If we ever witnessed this poverty, it was fleeting and at best made an edgy, authentic snap for our photo album. We didn't dare to experience what it was like to live alongside serious deprivation. That was something for anthropologists and priests. We were busy pursuing culture and recreation, for isn't this how we learn about the world? Living in a community with a high prevalence of HIV AIDS, a water shortage, no electricity, unreliable food, and exceptionally bad roads has seriously challenged our understanding about the world. We can't help feeling that if we'd done this earlier, we might have learned things that years of pursuing culture and pleasure have failed to teach us. Not that when you come to Africa, you expect to be taught something, If anything, you think because you've read the economic arguments and know the history and come from a part of the world which has surely worked out how life works, that you have something to teach it. Then you get to this massive red earth continent and away from the tourist bubble, you realize that your horizons have been utterly limited until now and that these people you characterize as poor and sick and somehow lacking in the basics are, despite all their face, talented, funny and generous, that they live with exceptional hope and resilience and in communities so interdependent that it makes our individualistic self-sufficient lives seem deleterious. 
For a while, your whole system of measuring wealth gets turned upside down. Then you wake up the next day and circumstances douse your naive enthusiasm. Across the road, a 35-year-old man has died of AIDS, leaving four, five more orphans for the community to feed. Then you learn that the community has inadequate water for crops because there's been a two-year drought. Then a tearful father asks you for funds to send a daughter to, to secondary school. And there is a scandal about the government spending millions on fleets of flashy four-wheel drives, a government that is already spending more on repaying debt than it does on education, and you want to push your head into the red dust and scream. The next day, the sun comes up, and you see the people walking to market to sell mangoes and goats in exchange for exercise books and tools. And in church, people pledge sacks of beans for the orphans, and the widows' groups are using the money from their maize to buy another cow. And maybe the government are going to bore for water after all. And there's a sense that with a little support and some investment that this could all work. You sit down, exhausted from the roller coaster of an African day, when your 70-year-old neighbour comes to check that you are okay, as if you are the one who is deprived. And you offer her a glass of water, and she pauses before drinking, and you wonder if you've broken some social protocol. Then you see that she is actually thanking God for the glass of water and for the gift of life. And you realise that all your wealth, travel, education, privilege, has never really taught you the true worth of a glass of water or been able to demonstrate how precious life is as simply and powerfully as this. So the experience of, of going to Africa was was very moving on on you as a as a family, and you say it changed your perception of church, your own faith, your own living of of your faith. Could, could you say a bit more about that? Yes, I think it, I think it was um, one of the things about HIV/AIDS, which was interesting. Uh, and this is because you went partly to do work on HIV/AIDS. Yeah, you? the Salvation Army. I wanted someone to write about the work they were doing around the world. And the work they were doing around the world was slightly para to the main organization. And that was partly because of HIV AIDS, that basically people had to get out of the building. Mm -hmm. So the church couldn't expect people to come to it. It had to go to people, much as the hospitals had to become mobile and go out rather than people coming to them. It was a sort of similar thing. And it was a very profound thing to witness that. So you could see this sort of crisis was challenging the way people practice their faith, uh, but in good ways, you know, in, in, at best, you know, um, you know, you had to be the church um, rather than it be something you go to or attend. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's simplicity, simplistically put that coming back, when we came back, actually, one of the hardest things about coming back from that journey was not coming back to this and all that was lovely about our country. It was actually just going back to church and thinking, is this how we're going to do it? Or should we do it a different way? So, you know, without, you know, I'd, I'm not saying we solved this, this great conundrum of how and what, well, how church should be, but it, it was a, a real challenge to, to that and, um, sort of encouraged other things. You know, I do a men in a pub group, um, which I think I've done a thought for the day about, which was for guys who don't really want to go to church, but want to have the conversation. Cause I think people want to have the conversation and that's, I guess, the privilege of thought for the day is, I know it's not a conversation, it's, it's a monologue, but um, it is still part of this conversation. Sure. And and actually, you're immediately addressing in the studio mm. um, a succession of people who have different views on yeah. uh, uh, on thought for the day. Uh, I love this comment. John Humphreys has um, uh, commented on, on, on Ridian, and he says, the problem with Ridian's thoughts is how often I find myself agreeing with him. <laughs> Most annoying. <laughs> <laughs>
and and we know from um, from various things. I mean, he wrote in his um, his recent book, um, "For the Day Like Today," is mm. has a whole chapter, doesn't he, on mm. on thought for the day, and it's fairly critical. Um, and something that was written in the uh, Radio Times was it a couple of years mm. ago, and um, there was comments of from all of them, mm. uh, the regular presenters, mm. and and it wasn't all that positive. How do you feel um, it goes down with those? Those immediate people. Mm. Uh, I'll ask about the wider question uh, later. You know about um, place of thought today in society, but um, just with those people, with with John Humphreys, with mm. you know the others, how how is it received by them? Do they do they cut it off? Do they stop listening? Are they preparing other stuff. Do they sometimes listen. Do they talk to you. How does it go? First of all, they've always been incredibly sort of welcoming to me when I've been doing it, and over the years, you get to know them a little bit better. I've never felt direct hostility um, at all. John and others have actually sort of really listened to my thought. And John did actually once follow me out after I'd done a thought and say, oh, I love that. But they can't always leave the room because they've got, you know, people shouting in their ears and there's a blank wall there behind, which are their editors, you know, saying, Tony Blair's about to speak to you or whatever. So there's a sort of huge kind of rush of information going on. So it's impressive at all that they engage with you. And by the time you're halfway through that thought, the sort of they're already cranking up, you know, the next segment. So it's not an ideal space to discuss it. But I've met them off duty, as it were, mm. at, at events, and you know, I've had really good conversations. And you know, there's a spectrum of faith amongst those mm. presenters. Uh, they're not all atheist or even agnostic, you know. So there is faith there. So I, I think, yeah, I think that I think that experience has yeah. been fine for me. Who who do you enjoy listening to? On top of the day. I don't listen to it religiously, I have to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not squirming out of it. Well, Sam Wells, who is here, I love, I love catching Sam. And Richard Harris is actually a neighbor of mine, and he's been doing it longer. He's one of the few people I can actually meet for coffee and talk to mm. about this strange thing called Thought for the Day. Mm. And uh, he's something of a mentor um, uh, and a, a lovely man. Um, and he, he, he go, he's been doing Thought for the Day so long, he goes back to the time when they didn't even have producers. Right. And they read it unedited. Mm. This was during the Falklands War and everything. And apparently mm. someone, some director said, of the university said, we need to edit these. We can't have these bishops sounding off, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, I, I've enjoyed, Mona Siddiqui started at the same time as me. I've always enjoyed listening to her. Jonathan Sachs have a, has a lovely voice. Angela Tilby is a bit of a sort of uh, steel fist and a velvet glove. Yeah. Um, um, Lucy Winkett's yeah. quite, you know, yeah. always makes me sit up. Yeah. Okay. I actually, I enjoy, I really do enjoy most of them actually. Yeah. Um, and when I, whenever I have a conversation with people, you know, about Thought for the Day, they go, oh yeah, that's the one with Rabbi Blue. That's the first sentence. <laughs> um, who I did enjoy also. And yeah. then it's like, yeah, I don't really like anyone on Thought for the Day. Apart from you, you know, they might say to be polite, and I, I often think, really, mm. do you really listen to it? Because mm. some of these people are really good, mm. and some of the thoughts are excellent, mm. and mm. you don't hear that kind of quality of thinking that much at mm. all. So I'm, I, I sort of, I do find myself defending the others. You know, mm. I hope they do the same for me. In, in the area of faith um, and religion, people do just bring their own, of course, yeah, that their own sort of backdrop, don't they, to it, and uh, their own filters. Um, but what about the wider place of thought of the day? Because it, every so often, every few years, it'll get come under attack again, mm. won't it? 
um, and uh, the Humanist Society or you know the House of Lords will start mm. speaking or something. You know, people will say, "Why do we privilege, let's say, this religious group when now half the world, half the country's population, say they don't have a faith?" Um, how how do you react, respond to that kind of attack that will keep on coming? I have a sort of mixed view about it, actually. Um, part of me would like to hear atheists and humanists do book the day. I just wanted to hear what, what would they say? <laughs> Who would they quote? Mm. How would they make us feel about mm. something that's happening in the news? You know, I, I'm curious, genuinely. Mm. Um, and also just to see how, for them to see how hard it is to do it well and to not sound platitudinous. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to believe in God to sound platitudinous. So there's a little bit of me that says, bring it on. Let's open it out. Um, but then the other bit of me gets that it's, it's three minutes of, you know, the sheet when it came through explaining what it was. You know, it's, it's a, it's a faith, it's a reflection on something in the news through a faith perspective. That's the remit. Um, it's quite straightforward. It's not as though the rest of the world doesn't have a voice. You know, it comes out, it, the strangeness is that it comes out in the middle of this program, which is actually, it's parachuted in because it's produced by BBC Religion. It's not produced by today. And there's this sort of love-hate thing going on between those two things. It's like, oh, there's this bit in the middle of our program which we have no control over. How annoying. Yeah. Um, so I get that. Um, yet at the same time, if you took it away, I think people would notice it and they'd miss it. I mean, I, I'm the only person to have done Thought for the Day after 8 o'clock, uh, as far as I know, because I, my car didn't pick me up. And uh, I did it at 8.30 after Gary Richardson had done sport. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day, uh, the Guardian leader, the sort of little bit of the Guardian leader, said, where's thought for the day when you need it? <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, very good. Coming on late. And Gary, Richard, Gary Richardson said, yeah. thoughts that make me think, thoughts that make you think. I asked Rillian to let me do thought for the day, but he said no. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. We won't, we, I wanted to read the sports news, you see, he said, only if you let me do thought. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, let me just ask you um, uh, a final question here, Rigan. You've done it for 20 years. Do, do you ever get fed up of doing it? Think, oh, crumbs, thought for the day again. Um, how is it for you? I, it is, there is a sort of, um, it's sort of not my day job, and yet it's the thing that people know me for, perhaps more than, you know, even being a writer of fiction. I often wish I could sort of plug my books while I'm doing Thought for the Day. Because, um, of course, the reach is huge. And it dents the week when you're doing it, even though it's one day. You know, I'm a freelance writer, so I'm not, you know, I don't get paid to take the time off. And you, it's 90 quid a pop, you know, and it's been 90 quid since I started doing it. Um, the only perk is that a car picks you up, you know, and takes you in and out. So, of course, there are other perks, but they're sort of invisible. Um, it's been at the same rate. For 20 years. When I started doing it, and you know, this should be said in its defense, actually. But when I started doing it, it had just gone up from 60. Christine Morgan had, was the person who put it up from 65 pounds to 90 pounds. Right. And it's still 90 pounds. So it dents the week. And so there is that slight resentment. Ah, you know, if I might be, if I'm writing a book or something, it breaks the stride. But it, in another way, it's actually really good discipline for the, for the mind. And it gets, you know, it wakes me up a bit. Can I just read again what um, at the very start of the book, the introduction says, um, goes like this. Brilliant right says, you've got a day to write 500 words about something in the news through the prism of your faith, but don't preach. You must not say anything that might offend. Make sure the words contain enough theology to satisfy the remit. Stay true to your faith. 
while remembering that the vast majority of people out there don't share it. There is no we on thought for the day. Don't be platitudinous, be original. Write as though addressing one person, but deliver them to six million. You'll be live on Radio 4 in the middle of the most influential political news program in the country. Read it in under three minutes, ideally two minutes, 45 seconds. Be ready for feedback, expect criticism, maybe even hostility. You'll get paid £90 a pop. Don't give up the day job. <laughs> I mean, that's the task, and Rydian does it uh, so well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.